Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, your new host. On this edition of the program, we discuss how elite athletes make the leap from sport to business. Elite athletes don't necessarily have more willpower or they're not more motivated than any other person. I think they're just better at creating routines and habits. We also look at what corporate leaders can learn from the competitive mindset. You've got to be able to focus on what you're trying to achieve. You've also got to have a real self-belief that you're capable of achieving what you want to achieve. And we chat to Olympic gold medalist and world diving champion, Matthew Mitchum. It's easy for me to go, okay, I have a goal and I am willing to put in all of the effort that it takes to get it. I'm just so used to going the extra mile because of sport. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, as the saying goes, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. Although, let's be honest, I think most of us would prefer winning than perhaps losing. But even when you do end up with an unfavourable result, there's always something to learn. I guess that's what they call the silver lining. To look more closely at the highs and lows of competitive sport, I was joined by two people at KPMG. Adrian Radley, Commonwealth Games champion backstroke swimmer, and hockey roo, Emily Chalker, who's just returned from the Tokyo Games. Emily Chalker, Adrian Radley, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Emily, I'll start with you. You just returned from competing in the Tokyo Games. This is your third Olympics, I believe. Given the COVID factor, how different was this experience to the previous Games? Yeah, I guess each Olympic Games is quite unique in its own way. Um, In London, I was the baby and really nervous for those games. In Rio, I guess we had the Zika virus concern and this time it was no crowds and COVID. So for me, actually having no crowds positively impacted my performance. How so? I don't think I was as nervous as I was playing in front of a big crowd and especially having my family in the crowd because sometimes I feel like I owe them so much for getting me to where I am today that that makes me want to do so much more than what I need to do. Um, Whereas not having them there just meant I could go out and do what I do every day at training and just play the way that I play without the extra pressure. Adrian, you also competed at an elite level as a swimmer. You're a Commonwealth Games champion. How have those skills you learned from competing and training transferred into your profession? There are a lot of parallels and Now 20 years out, I think, you know, extreme discipline, scars and losses will fade away. And I think years and years later, you'll remember the good times. But that discipline, um, being very goal orientated and commitment and focus towards an end vision is something that sticks with you for life. And you can't turn that off. You've just got to learn how to reshape it and focus it on something else in your life, whether it's work you know, shape that to something that's meaningful, but also other areas of your life, like being a mum or a dad and other things in life, you can't turn that off. So that commitment and and drive for for excellence is always going to be with you. You know, it's interesting what you're saying, Adrian. I'm curious to know, um, because you talk about the discipline, obviously this is something that is instilled in you and, and also it would be with you, Emily, from a very young age. I would imagine you'd be training as kids. When you leave elite sporting competitions. How do you deal with that? A lot of people struggle with it. And, you know, there's a very famous saying that athletes die twice. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds terrible, but it's more that it it fades away into the normality of life. But 
I think those that move on and succeed are the ones that can, again, like I said previously, can really reshape that focus. But it is something, it is a void that <clears throat> you'll never fill um, or you'll try and fill for the rest of your life and feel that, that need. But it's, in, it's just in, in built in you, that drive and commitment. So, again, if you can't reshape it, you see a lot of athletes on the front pages for the wrong reasons. But um, you've just got to reshape your focus and, and put that towards something meaningful in another way. And having been there, Adrian, how did you reshape that discipline, that focus to channel it into your professional career? Humility. I always use the analogy that I'm back in the learn to swim school, you know, right in the, the bottom of the, the chain again and having that humility to go, I need to start again. I, it's about playing a role, learning new skills and starting again and being okay with it. And Emily, how are you preparing yourself for potentially leaving competition? Yeah, I guess this happened for me maybe a year ago when all the COVID lockdown started to happen. It made me really think about my future, my career, like sport was coming to an end and there was so much uncertainty in the world. And I think it was then that I started investing time and energy into networking and it was investing to make sure that I had something to move into straight away. I knew that was going to be best for me both mentally um, to be able to have something else, as Adrian said, to focus my energy on and not just sitting around and thinking about the Olympics and then trying to start the process. Mm. And, you know, Adrian, when you're an elite athlete, you can evaluate your performance because it's, you know, it's pretty obvious where you're sitting. But in a work context, there's no ranking table per se. So how do you bring that mindset to business so that you can kind of track yourself? That's a great question, Whitney. You've obviously done your homework and spoken to other athletes. I try to, Adrian, I try to. <laughs> I, I think that sports are very fortunate existence. The, the outcomes are, are black and white. Your result stands for itself. My, my best time, 52-28, it's, that's my number, fraternity, right? So there's 52, no subject. 52-28, hang on, I just want to pull you up on that. 52-28 is your best time for what? 100 metre backstroke, so. That is incredible. Yeah, oh, my so, God, I'm so jealous. That's the nuts thing about sport. You train for four years for 50 that's seconds. Um, in business, in commerce, in industry, there's a lot of grey and an individual's performance is it's part of a team. So I think, you know, it's more like a, a hockey, soccer or football Emily, I'm interested to hear what are the key points that business leaders can learn from elite athletes like yourself? Uh, the main one for me, I guess, is elite athletes don't necessarily have more willpower or they're not more motivated than any other person. I think they're just better at creating routines and habits mm -hmm. that remove the need for decision-making. Decision-making for me takes energy. So the less decisions you need to make in a day clears up time for the important things and creates that balance that everyone needs in their life. You know, that's interesting you say that because President Obama, when he was in office, he actually only wore, I think, two different coloured suits because he didn't want to have to make a decision about what he was wearing each day. Yeah, I see it every day, the routines that I have in place, that my teammates have in place to make sure that they're performing at the highest level they can day in and day out. Mm. And Adrian, what, what's your view on that? I only wear one colour shirt now after reading the Obama, <laughs> I, I do, after reading the Obama book. what colour so is that? Is it it's white? It's white, yeah. yeah. I look good in white though, Whitney, so I'm lucky. So. White with a blue suit? Yeah, very boring, <laughs> yeah. Male, pale and stale. Um, for, for me, the decisions is a big one too. I think it's really well documented now that the energy that goes into to those decisions. I was actually going to go there. That's hilarious, Emily. But um, <laughs> that comes down back to sport. 
you know, I was with a cohort of people that would have no idea what their phone bill, energy bill was, um, wouldn't know how to pay the bill if, even if they knew what the balance was. So they had support staff. Gee, they could swim and gee, they could train really hard, but everything else in their life was done for them, which enabled them to just do one thing. Now, that's impossible in, in a working environment in real life. Mm. But what, what I took out of that cohort for Hackett Klim, they were all very different in the way they approached their sport. T- taking aspects of each individual athlete or leader in business and, and forming your own style is what I really took from sport into the workplace. So some of us are great in certain ways, one-on-one with individuals, some are great with clients, some are intellectually better than most. So it's about taking aspects of each different athlete or leader and becoming your own person. That's sort of what I took out of the sport. For both of you, I would imagine that growing up in this kind of elite training mindset, it would have been very hard to to balance your training, your friends, your education. And then as you transitioned out of that, I think, you know, or as you do transition, Emily, how do you guys handle the spinning plates and find some sort of balance is not a great word, but I guess it's the only one I have. So how do you find that? To be honest, it's quite hard and you often get a bit guilty um, that you're being so selfish. I think athletes have to be selfish in a sense to be successful. So, for example, the last two or three years in my household, the focus has been on me and my performance and what I need to do to get to the Olympic Games. And, yeah, I guess my husband is very supportive of that and he always has been. But, yeah, there are times where you feel guilty that you're not spending enough time with him, you know, the dogs are being neglected. They're not. <laughs> They're very spoiled. Um, but yeah, you often question that, you know, are you doing too much and not doing one thing well enough? But the one thing that I guess I've learned around this is to, I obviously don't get it right all the time, is to try and be in the moment no matter what you're doing. So mm. if I was going to training at six o'clock in the morning, training had my energy and my commitment. I'd, you know, have a shower, go to work and try and switch that mindset that work was now the priority and had to stop thinking about training. And yeah, when you get home from work, your energy and attention move straight to your family. But then also really important for me to make sure that I have that little bit of time at the end of the day to rest and re-energise to make sure that I'm also doing well and getting through. But yeah, it is hard and it's a bit of a slog some days, but you know, when you have these lofty goals and you're really passionate about something, it keeps you going towards that goal. I really like that being in the moment. I think that's a really, really important point. Adrian, would you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Would you agree? Yeah, I probably wish I had an older head on young shoulders. I, I was more all in. It was work, work, work. And life just sort of sat and waited while I finished my professional career, um, mm-hmm. which I loved. I was just all in. I was a mad little kid who just wanted to train the house down. <laughs> the whole work-life balance thing for me is a bit, well, love your work and you'll never sort of work a day in your life. So I know that's a, a bit of a cliche. And what I love is that I, I feel like I'm always working, but I'm, it never feels like my life suffering because I, I choose to do this. I, I choose to participate in this work. So for me, it's, it's enjoyable all the time. Emily and Adrian, thanks for joining me on the program. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you both. If you need anything else, let us know. All right. Well, you know what, Adrian? I swim every day or I try to, so I might actually need some technique.
As in competitive sport, mindset in business is also incredibly important. You generally can't have one without the other, and training the mind, like training the body, is really a skill that's honed over time. For more on this, I spoke to Stuart Doty, former sports journalist who toured with the New Zealand cricket team and covered three Olympic Games. Stuart has taken what he's learned from elite athletes and is now a mindset coach for business leaders. Stuart Doty, welcome to the program. Thank you, Whitney. Pleasure to be here. Stuart, mindset is quite the buzzword and it has been for a while. When we talk about mindset, is it just how someone thinks or is it more than that? It goes a lot deeper. I always like to think that mindset is a combination of different elements which include your thoughts, the way you think, your beliefs, what you really believe at a deep level, and also your activity, what actions you take. So your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions combined together really reflect what we're talking about when we talk about mindset. So I guess when we talk about an Olympic or an elite sports mindset, what characteristics come into play in your view? There are several, and it's sometimes hard to be able to hold them all in your mind at once. And this is what, what's uh, so important about the elite athletes. They practice, they know, they understand. But we're talking about really focus. You've got to be able to focus on what you're trying to achieve. You've also got to have a confidence. You've got to have a real self-belief that you're capable of achieving what you want to achieve. Um, but I think it always starts with what I call the four Ds. You've got to have a dream that builds to a desire You've got to be able to make a decision and then have that determination to do what it takes to win. Be able to focus on what you're doing, where you're going, with a determination and belief that you can achieve it. Is there an athlete in the world at the moment who epitomises this kind of mindset? Yeah, actually, you know, Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One racing driver. And I'm being very English-centric here. What about know. Usain Bolt when he was around? Um, incredible confidence, I think, is really what stands out about him. Mm-hmm. He knew his body's ability and it translated into confidence. And that's what the difference is at the top level. The difference between, you know, when we're talking tenths of seconds, it's the degree of confidence in a person's mind that translates into the bodies so that the body is comfortable enough to do what it does well, what it's been trained to do well. We've got to get our mind out of the way so that our body can do what it's trained to do. So, yeah, Usain Bolt was an incredible example of self-belief, confidence, desire, enjoyment. He enjoyed what he was doing. Mm. He wanted to do what he did well. A lot of people, they're hesitant about how good they are. They're not sure that they really believe themselves. You know, what's the belief deep in your heart that gets in the way, that holds you back from being the best you can be? I think we all suffer from a little bit of that, Stuart. (laughs) We do. Everybody does. It should be in there. There's no one's born without it. We have self-doubt. It's a choice to overcome. Mm. You're a business coach now, but you spent, you know, 20 years of your career as a Reuters journalist and uh, covering sport at an elite level. Olympic Games and international test cricket. So you've been observing the traits of high performers for a long time now on the sporting field. What did you observe? Yeah, you know, that's what got me into personal development in the first place, being interested as a student before becoming a teacher. Um, The ability of people to be able to do what they want to do so well. How does one person perform better than another? Um, And it really comes down for me to desire and focus. A person has to want it. You see, you know, I I covered the New Zealand cricket team in the 80s and what caught my attention was their focus to detail, their desire to do well, to do better the next time, to be the best they could be. And the little psychological ideas that they held on to that helped them do that. And it's that 
determination, that desire, coupled with the focus that they put on it, the time that they spend. You know, hard work is a, is a big part of everything that they do, but you've got to want it to be able to put in the work. So when you're working with business leaders uh, and executives, what do you find are the key points that they struggle with the most in terms of mindset? Yeah, you know, it's always self-belief. It's fear of failure really? and lack of self-belief, really. Even with really well-known top executives. It's still there. It's still there in the mind. It never goes away. You never overcome mm. fear. You never overcome self-doubt. You've got to build your way past it. You know, I was working with, I still am working with a uh, um, a senior manager, uh, asset manager for a, a large oil major. Mm. That's been one of his biggest challenges, believing in himself. You can look at him from the outside and he is incredibly accomplished, but he still has these doubts about whether he's good enough for the next level. Yes, I did that well, I've done that well, but am I good enough for what's next? That doubt still shows up. So is there like a profound leap that people need to make to bridge the gap between being aware of self-sabotaging, you know, that thought pattern, how to quit them and then replace them with a a more uh, productive, positive behavioural pattern? I think it's really the will to do it, willpower. You've got to have that desire for the goal, the desire for the next challenge, Mm. so that it's strong enough to make sure you can free yourself from those self-sabotaging beliefs. Now, there are ways of programming the mind to lessen them, to replace them, and that takes time. But ultimately, it comes down to the will to want more because often people will settle for what they've got. You know, business leaders will sometimes say, well, it's good enough as it is. I was, I was working with someone this week. Actually, I was working with someone who's a, an executive coach for executive coaches. So he's a coach, my client, he <laughs> coaches executives, and he can't manage his own life, although he can manage theirs. He can help other people achieve, but he's not helping himself be able to achieve what he needs to achieve. And it's because, well, it's okay just the way it is. It's, it's good enough right now. Mm. If I take on this next big challenge, this next, next big risk, maybe I'll fail this time. So even though he's been successful for over 25 years and works with very successful people, he still hears those little doubts show up when the next big challenge appears for him. So what, what do we have to do? How do we overcome that self-sabotaging? Well, we've got to be aware of why it's there, what it really means, that it's not the truth. It's just a belief that you can choose to ignore or accept and put our attention on the future, put our attention, our focus on where we want to go instead of where we are. So most people, certainly in the business world, they focus too much on the problem that they've got in front of them, the situation that's a problem, and not enough on where they want to go, the outcome, which is what an athlete does. The athlete is all about the outcome that they want, the result they want, the goal they've set for themselves, the medal they're going for. Whereas I think in the business world, too many people focus on the problem they've got or they exaggerate the problems they have. And they're not focused, committed with absolute belief and confidence that they're going to achieve the goal that they've been set. So in your view, what does a successful mindset for business look like? Like, are there any role models out there that you can kind of point to? I think straight away what flashes into my mind is actually Richard Branson. I was thinking um, that too. You know, really, I've interviewed really, yeah. him. Yeah. He's quite an right. interesting guy. Yeah. Mm. So, Rich, as a leader in business, how do you actually inspire your people and what are the key critical things that people need in, in leadership positions need to keep in mind? Well, over, you know, overall, they need to 
remember that a business is only its people. You know, he has great passion, great enthusiasm, determination. He doesn't let failures stop him mm. or hold him back. I think one of the things that he often says is, you know, um, you learn by doing and falling over. You learn by failing. Don't be embarrassed by your failures. Don't be put off by your failures. Yeah, he doesn't seem to really mind so much what people think or say about him. Because you can't please all the people all the time, right? So don't worry about the people <laughs> who don't agree with what you're doing or who you're being. Stay true to your own principles. Stay true to your own values and your own dreams. That, I think for him, it is the willingness to and desire to follow a dream. You know, he left school at 16 with a dream to start a business. And I think what's funny about him also is that he started a student magazine and to fund it, he started a mail-order catalogue of uh, records and music which turned into his real great success, Virgin mm. Records. And he doesn't let failure set him off course. He actually just accepts it and learns from it and moves on. Yeah. Failure doesn't have to be frightening. Failure isn't, you know, what do we say? That if you quit, you fail, but failing isn't failure. Failing is learning, but quitting is failure. Stuart Doherty, thank you for joining the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, cast your mind back to 2008. What a different world it was then. A young Australian diver captured the spirit of the Beijing Olympics and the heart of a nation with his perfect gold medal winning dive. He then went on to launch his autobiography, Twists and Turns. Then he played the ukulele in his cabaret show with the same name. Now he's married and living what he calls a relatively normal life in London with his husband. Although, knowing him, I find that hard to believe because there's nothing ordinary about my next guest. I am, of course, talking about one of the loveliest people you will ever meet, Matthew Mitchum. He joined me from his office in London. Matthew Mitchum, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, as I was prepping for this interview, I watched a video of your Beijing Olympic dive campaign, and I think you'd done five dives, and your main rival, Zhao Lujin, had a strong lead, and to overtake him, you had to deliver the highest score in diving history, and you did it. The young Aussie, Matthew Mitchum. A terrific entry. Can you just take us through what it was like for you performing that dive? Yeah, so my preparation had been so good up until that point that, you know, I needed to do everything in my power to do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of these kinds of, you know, like him doing well or me doing well or, you know, seeing where my sort of ranking was, these were all kind of counterproductive things. And so I just really had to bring it back to what do I need to do in this dive in order to do the best dive that I can do. And so that was basically just, you know, a few technical things that I repeated to myself over and over. What were those things? I would repeat to myself tall, you know, to kind of visualize jumping straight up into the air. Mm -hmm. um, Two and a half twists because, you know, I've got ADHD and very forgetful and I needed to remind myself of how many twists I needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it sounds silly, but actually, if you know, when you do do like one and a half twisters, two and a half twisters, three and a half twisters, sometimes, you know, you do need to kind of remind yourself of which one of those you're actually doing. Mm -hmm. So tall, two and a half twist, 
round back. So like I needed to round my back into the pike after the twist to get a nice tight pike and then fast arms to get my arms up to the water as quickly as possible um, to get that nice, beautiful rip entry. So when you have that intense focus, that face of intense focus, that's what you're thinking? Yes, yes, exactly. Tall two and a half twist, tight bike, fast arms. It's a lot to do in a very short space of time. Yeah, exactly. You know, there was the physical things that I needed to think about, but you're not just a physical being, you are a mental being as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, thoughts do come in and your thoughts do have an impact on your actions. Um, all of that training that I did in the lead up to the Beijing Olympic Games, every single time I did a dive, I would think to myself, okay, this dive is for Olympic gold. This dive is for Olympic gold. Like I would practice putting myself in that position over and over and over again. I actually practiced that do or die moment every time, not because I was, you know, envisaging that I would actually be, you know, doing a dive for Olympic gold in Beijing. I wanted to make sure that I was putting in 100% of the effort that I had in that moment every single time to really maximise that 15 months leading up to the Beijing Olympic Games. When you're diving, I was watching these videos, you've got this steely resolve on your face. I mean, I've you know, I've seen you socially, I've seen you perform live in cabaret and the difference in your demeanour is is markedly different. Mm. But when you saw your score and again on the dais, um, you had this look of complete joy. I mean, and you were emotional as any would would be in that moment. How was that for you? How did that feel like going from that sort of really extreme concentration and just being in that moment and then because you weren't paying attention to where you were at in terms of scores. How did that feel when you went, oh, my God, I did it? Yeah, there was a few moments because, you know, I remember before my last dive thinking, if my name comes on on top of the leaderboard after this dive, then I've got an Olympic silver medal because I just assumed that the Chinese diver after me was going to win the final. Mm -hmm. And... Obviously, I had to push that out of my mind because that's you know, more counterproductive thinking um, and just focus on the task at hand. And, you know, I did the dive. And when the scores came up, it was like 10, 10, 9.5, 10, 10, 9.5. And it wasn't even the total score. Like, I didn't even register that. It was literally the one next to my name that, like, it just, <laughs> it was beyond what I had hoped or, th- or expected or, or even thought was possible for this games because, mm. you know, like I, I didn't have an ideal preparation. Like I was completely retired and like not treating my body like a temple, um, you know, like 15 months before mm-hmm. Beijing. And, you know, so this just exceeded my expectations of what was possible. And, you know, that one next to my name, I actually thought was a silver medal because there was still a Chinese diver to dive after me. So, you know, like that was... It was, it was, it was, it was joy, it was surprise, it was just complete disbelief. Matt, a lot happened at the Beijing Olympics for you. What did you consider to be the most important? You know, of all of the things that I took out of Beijing, like I knew I got a gold medal and I knew that they were going to be Olympic champions after me, which, you know, obviously they were. I knew that one day my Olympic record would be beaten um, and it did get beaten, you know, 13 years later. And, uh, but I think the one thing that I'm proudest of that like nobody will ever be able to take away from me is that I 
am the first openly gay Olympic champion. My understanding is you didn't really plan to publicly come out before the Olympics, but you did an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald and you mentioned you were living with your boyfriend. Is that mm-hmm. is that how that happened? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so, you know, like the, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, sent out a journalist to the pool to um, do, I guess, you know, interviews with or just to, I don't know, profiles on me and a couple of my teammates that had also qualified for the Olympics. And, um, you know, when it was my turn, it was, yeah, just, you know, all the general biographical questions, you know, how old I am, where I live, who I live with. And yeah, because I had been through a process of, um, you know, like as a teenager, like I, I had I had the experience of, of being in the closet mm. as a teenager um, and I didn't like it. I felt very alienated within my training environment. And so, you know, I retired at 18 with no actual, I retired, how funny, um, <laughs> with no actual intention yeah. <laughs> of returning to the sport. Um, and, you know, found, like, I just got really comfortable with myself and my identity and kind of promised myself that I would never, mm. you know, I would always be, you know, upfront and honest about my identity from that point forward. And my coach, uh, when I did, you know, the, the coach that invited me to come back training again, you know, 15 months before the Beijing Games, he actively created this open inclusive training environment where I just felt like so comfortable and accepted for exactly who I was. Mm. And, um, and so I just got really used to and comfortable with, uh, with myself and my identity that I didn't really give it a second thought when, you know, I didn't have the thought of, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, like be open about my sexuality. I, it just kind of came out. So Matt, that level of concentration that you have when you're preparing for a dive, is that something that you can harness and use now outside the pool when you're, you know, doing other tasks or things that that need that kind of level of focus and attention? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the best thing that has come out of sport for me is some of those kinds of skills um, mm. where, you know, because I... I'm a normal person now. Like I am literally sitting in an office in central London. It's a far, far removal from, you know, the world of sport. But um, it's easy for me to go, okay, this is a job that needs doing. I have a goal and I am willing to put in all of the effort that it takes in order to get it. You know, and whether that, that means, you know, working longer hours, whether that means like, you know, having really intense working sessions. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, I'm i just so used to going the extra mile because of sport. Now, you're also going to be inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in the class of 2022, my friend. Um, what does that mean to you? That's really, it's really cool because I have, th- th- that International Swimming Hall of Fame is actually uh, like an extension of, Uh, the Fort Lauderdale pool Mm. where I have dived many, many times. And, you know, when I I referenced that I won the last international event on like before the Olympic Games, it was at that pool, (laughs) you know. So I, you know, I'm very familiar with the pool. I'm very familiar with the Hall of Fame. And it's, um, I mean, it's just kind of like one of those things where it's like, you know, if you think about, you know, the heroes of your sport, you know, the best or of any sport really, Mm. um, you know, it's just kind of nice to have a bit of an acknowledgement um, in there because, 
if like any layman thought about who like the best people in you know diving were, they'd say Greg Luganis and Tom Daly. Matthew Mitchum. <laughs> oh, now of course. Do you feel that you kind of paved the way for people like Tom Daly? Absolutely. I feel entirely responsible for all of Tom's success. No, but do you think you coming out and being the first elite athlete in your sport to be openly gay, do you think it made it easier for other people? Um, I hope so. I'm not going to say, like, for sure, but I would like to hope so. You know, if I could if hmm. have a positive impact on other people's experiences and, and making it easy for other people, then, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of got a little bit of that validation um, uh, earlier this year when um, Anton Jenkins, a New Zealand um, diver, uh, openly gay, um, you know, did kind of say it was athletes like Tom and I who who made it easy for him to compete as an openly gay man. So, yeah, I mean, that would be nice to think that, you know, I, just me being me did make it easier for somebody else to be able to to compete and represent themselves authentically. And, of course, you know, we know each other because we shared the same stage and sang together at a club in Sydney. For you, was live performance an extension of competition? I never saw performance like cabaret as like an, an extension of competition. I actually saw diving more as a performance, you know, because mm. you got up on that, that platform and you had to do that exact thing at that exact moment um, for your audience, you know, which were the judges. Um, but it was, you know, it was always that show pony element. Like I loved competing because of that showmanship element. I loved diving because of that showmanship element. Um, I was a show pony and I thrived on, you know, that, that do or die moment um, in competitions. Like that, that adrenaline, I really you know, used to my advantage. So rather than seeing cabaret as being a, an extension of competition, I just saw them both as different types of performance. And, you know, there's still that element of what is fixed and what is flexible. Like in diving, yes, you have to, you know, re reproduce the same thing all the time, but sometimes things go wrong and you do have to, you know, be a bit flexible and, and make adjustments in the air. Cabaret loves that, that flexible part, you know, like, in fact, if you have stuff ups, like, you know, they, that's, you know, that's a wonderful thing to figure out how to like style it out. <laughs> I love that stuff. Matthew Mitchum, thank you for joining the program. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's all for the show. If you're interested in checking out Matthew's gold medal performance at the Beijing Games, the link's in the show notes. It really is worth a look. And until next time, thanks for listening to What Happens Next. You have been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 